you had a sixth sense of when you're overstaying your welcome. Or if you stayed just a minute longer, it was going to end badly. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. During the 1970s and 80s, Arthur Grace travelled extensively behind the Iron Curtain, working primarily for news magazines. One of an only small core of Western photographers with ongoing access, he was able to delve into the most ordinary corners of people's daily lives while also covering significant events. Arthur tells us in detail of the difficulties of working as a journalist in Eastern Europe and individual stories about the photos that he took. His remarkable book, Communisms, a Cold War album, is effectively psychological portraits that leave the viewer with a sense of the gamut of emotions in that era. Illustrated with over 120 black and white images, nearly all previously unpublished, the book gives an unprecedented glimpse behind the veil of a not-so-distant time. Shot in the USSR, Poland, Romania, Yugoslavia and East Germany, here are portraits of factory workers, farmers, churchgoers, holidaymakers and loitering teens, juxtaposed with socialist realist designed apartment blocks, annual May Day parades, Poland's solidarity movement and the vastness of Moscow's Red Square. Now, Cold War history is disappearing and a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air and keep preserving these incredible stories. You will get this sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. For more information, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews. It really helps us get new guests on the show. I'm delighted to welcome Arthur Grace, to our Cold War conversation. I was going to move to Washington for Time magazine, and they wanted to see me in New York for something, and they said, look, we've got a great assignment for you. We have a correspondent in West Berlin. Uh, He's got all these stories lined up. He just got there, recently arrived, and he wants to get the lay of the Soviet bloc countries. You have the assignment. And that's how I wound up there for, I don't know, three weeks, a month. Uh, don't recall. It's, I should preface this whole discussion by saying most of these things that happened were anywhere between 35 and 40 years ago. So my memory, <laughs> yeah. it's like, forgive me if, if something I say is not accurate. This is what I remember uh, as best I can. Certain things just stick in your memory and others you just maybe have it. Uh, embellished or you forget. Um, yeah, no, completely understood. That's a heck of a lot of rolls of 36. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. So do you, do you remember much of that first assignment? What yeah, you're covering? It, it, sure, it was very, uh, very impactful for me. The first thing was I had, um, the correspondent had his own hold and I was staying in a hotel. And... I would go out at night. We were going to leave right away, like a day or two. As soon as I got acclimated, we were going to leave. So he was, um, he dropped me off at the hotel and I'd go out. And West Berlin at the time was a happening place. I mean, there was neon, reds, blues, greens, cars, Mercedes, people dressed, you know, beautifully, crazily. It was, it was really a, 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 a city that was a lot. And I enjoyed every minute of it. At the time, the short time was there. But then we went to East Berlin to go to the airport to um, get to other Soviet bloc countries. And the reason was the flights were much easier. And some, I think, were the only flights that left from the East Berlin airport. So anyway, we kept, went through Checkpoint Charlie. And as soon as you got into East Berlin, boom, monochrome, monochromatic. There was no color. There were just 
the, the Stalinist architecture, the gray buildings, the drab cars, the whatever. It was like somebody just, you know, hit today, you know, uh, when you shoot a color digital picture, you know, convert to black and white. It was almost that stark. So that really uh, kind of shocked me right away that I was in a different place. And I didn't see a lot of smiles from people at Checkpoint Charlie or anywhere else. That was my first indoctrination of what I was going to be looking at. Um, and it was a sense of really repression or something that people weren't comfortable. Anyway, that was it. So we took off. And I think our first Trump trip was to Bucharest for the 100th anniversary of the, quote, independence of Romania. And uh, so it began. That was uh, in the first place we visited and covered a story there. There's some photos in the book of that visit. And you've obviously got the big party conference there and you have a picture of Ceausescu and some military parades. But the the photos that had most impact for me were the ones of the teenagers. Like there's a group of schoolgirls and some teenage boys and they just look very carefree and, and happy and, you know, like you would expect in Western Europe. That's what you'd see throughout my travels. Teenagers, kids, they didn't... It didn't affect them. It didn't seem to get through to them. Or maybe it did, but as being teenagers and kids, you want to have fun. You're playing with your friends. Your parents are dealing with all the rest of it. You understand certain things. You're going to a certain school. You have to wear a certain uniform, or you're going to be taught certain things. But nothing anywhere in the world takes away from childhood. And also those pictures we did. We stayed in Bucharest for that party conference and for a few other things. Um, and then we went to Transylvania. So those photographs were taken in Transylvania. And then, in other words, the countryside. And people seemed to smile a bit more. And you didn't feel that sense of oppression or whatever. Yet you found people like in street clothes, tilling the fields. Uh, everything was something almost, you know, from the turn of this last century. In terms of their farming techniques, tools that they use for farming. And the funniest part was that everybody, this is Transylvania with uh, Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, and everybody had garlic all over their doors, which I thought was a joke, but it wasn't. Everybody had these big clumps of garlic over their door. Um, anyway, so things changed when you, when you got out of Bucharest. Uh, it was much more free-flowing, yet it was regimented as it was all over the country. How did you manage communicating with people? Because I'm presuming you didn't know any Romanian. Uh, no, we did. But that, again, gets back to the uh, state-provided guide, in quotes. Guide, minder, there are lots of words journalists use for that. Um, so we had a person with us uh, all the time, nice, you know, personable guy. But, you know, he was reporting to the authorities and keeping an eye on you. I guess if he needed backup, he could easily get backup. And kind of how it played out. Could you actually get away from them to, you know, take photos without being monitored? Or were you always being monitored? In, well, let's have a look at Romania first. The one uh, fact that you always understood, no matter where you were in the Soviet bloc, is you were being watched. Okay, and as I said in my introduction, you'd either see them, um, they'd be right there in front of you, or in the form of a guide or minder, or somebody from the press office, or you didn't see them. And sometimes in between, you saw them, and then they disappeared and reappeared later. So that you knew going into it, uh, that they were going to be watching everything you do and uh, recording, depending where you were, what you had to say. And the, uh, in Romania, it just had a more pleasant feel to it, but nothing changed. Okay, it was, you always knew. And if you were going to take a picture of something, it's, they'd say, why are you taking that picture? Or they'd say, um, what's interesting about that picture or don't take that picture. Uh, don't take that photograph. 
or don't go up to those people and talk to them. That's, you know, that's not something you should do. That, that would happen all the time if you overstep the line. So how do you take pictures? I mean, how do you get the photographs you want? And some of the times these minders, especially from the press office, they drifted off. They went to get a cup of coffee. They went to talk to the driver of the car. And that's when you'd shoot other pictures. If they were staying tight on you, if you had a reporter, which I did in most instances in Romania all the time, I might say to the reporter, I, I want to photograph this. Why don't you talk to him or ask him a question or, or, or head over that way and ask a question about something you see. And there was only one of him and two of us. So I was able to shoot the photograph that I wanted. There was always the uh, issue of them confiscating your film. If they thought you did something, it never happened. Uh, not only in Poland later, but at any time, A, they could throw you out of the country, uh, revoke your visa, or, or take your film. But that never happened. So, but that's how we did it. Or even if he was right next to me, I would say something, Hey, what's that? You know, over there, man, I don't even stand. You go over and look what's happening over there. And he would do it or be left. I only need 10, 15 seconds to take the photograph that I want. Other times there were things we wanted to see in Romania that the reporter was David Aikman, time correspondent, very good one. Um, he wanted to see a monastery, like historical monastery that was on this lake right outside of Bucharest. And he told me before we went, that's not the issue. The issue is all the elite of Romania, the what would be the oligarchs at that time, the, the wealthy, the privileged, have estates on this lake. So what we're going to do is uh, when we're on the uh, launch to take us to this monastery, I'll talk to him. And you shoot the estates or whatever you can see. And that's what we did. Um, and show how the wealthy. So on one hand, you had what was going on in Bucharest with the average person. And as was always the case in these countries, the elite, the wealthy, the powerful were living like kings. Now, I didn't put those pictures in the book because they weren't interesting per se. You take put a lot of photographs in the book that made a point, but really were not interesting enough to compare to other photographs. So even though I had these pictures, sometimes it was a German shepherd with a guard on the lawn and they had these boat houses with beautiful boats in them. So that's another thing we would do to try and tell the story without being obvious to them. Maybe they knew that's what we were looking for, but they never said anything. And what were some of the people sort of mistrustful of you, aside from your minder? Were they, you know, when you start pointing cameras at, at people, were they sort of uh, didn't want their photo taken or, or not? No, 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 no. They, <laughs> at that time, people were afraid. Okay, Frank, who were, you from? who were you? Where were you from? You could be state security. You could be anybody from the state in an authority role. And they were leery all the time of a stranger, a Western stranger, by the way, addressed. So the bottom line is the entire time I covered that part of the world, I was never confronted by a single person. You know, what are you doing? Why are you taking my picture? Like today, it's impossible. Anywhere in the Western world, wherever. But at that time, they lived in a world of suspicion and lack of trust and fear. And I was amazed. You, you know, you walk up, I'd sometimes say, can I take your photograph or the person would be with me from this press office. But even when they weren't around, I took somebody's photograph. They never said a word. Now, either they were surprised at what you were doing or happy that you would, some people smiled. And some people look very glum. Some people look frightened. And others, you know, just wanted to get away as soon as they could uh, from a camera, no matter who you were, they weren't sure of it. Were. So you'll see that the pictures I took of uh, the people walking in Red Square as a group of people. And you see, they're just giving me the eye, but no one's saying, even the military soldiers that are walking through the square, 
no one is saying, wait a minute, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? They just walk quickly by and you'll see some of the eyes is looking right at me uh, with apprehension or curiosity. That's the other thing, curiosity. But never did anybody say, don't take my picture or you can't take my photograph. Uh, only The only people who did that were the authorities. And it happened, you know, off and on. But the people, never. Because you've got some great photos in here with a variety of characters and expressions. I mean, there's one that I found quite striking, which was an, an old woman at a window in East Germany, I think. Yeah, She's got this broad smile on her face. When no one was around, I don't think I, the press guy was with me. He was talking with the reporter, and I was left to my own devices in this area. I don't know, of apartments or whatever it was. And I would walk, I was walking around and there was nothing, no military, anything there, nothing that I could get into trouble with them. Or, so I just walked up to this window and there was this woman that she just was friendly and smiled at me. And uh, uh, when I picked up the camera to take her picture, she smiled. She was, as I said before, some people were happy to be photographed. Or they were just friendly people who would, uh, normally friendly and outgoing. And, you know, she's an older woman and, uh, she really appreciated her photograph taken. Never said a word, by the way. Never said anything. Yeah. I mean, again, there's some great teenage photos in that section that, that you took in, uh, I think it's East Germany in 1977. And they look like teenagers from, from anywhere. You know, they're sitting on this park bench. I think one, a girl's sitting on the lap of one of the boys and they're smiling away at you. Did you have a minder around then or, or was that just a spontaneous photo that you managed to uh, shoot? Hey, there was no one over my shoulder. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. They, they weren't like over my shoulder all the time. After you had been there a while, one day, two days, they they saw that you weren't up to mischief, as they would put it, that you were there to take representative photographs, and um, they weren't over my shoulder. So maybe he was over here talking to somebody else because he was also translating for the reporter. So there were a lot of times as they were busy translating and interviewing, I was able to go off and do other things, which was really a huge advantage for me to get the photographs I wanted without the press person minder checking every two seconds where I was, where I was pointing my camera. So that was probably one of those times where he was interviewing, translating for the reporter and I was left to my own devices and I just saw them sitting there and I had a camera and the way I was dressed and I picked up the camera and they were you know, happy to be smiling. And like I said, Whatever the repression was, the fears were for their parents or their adults. For the kids, the teenagers, they were still teenagers. They wanted to have fun. You know, they were just getting in their girlfriend, boyfriend, the dating, the whole thing, and music. And, you know, they were having what a normal teenager would have. Not in the areas of clothing, you know, music, whatever like they did in the West, but they would see what was going on in the West and try and, you know, emulate that as best they could. The book is just packed full of these uh, these great photos, and we're only really going to scratch the surface of a few of them during this interview. You also went to uh, Poland. in It looks like 1977 was a busy year for you because you were in uh, Romania, the GDR, Moscow, and you went to Poland as well. And I was interested in, there's a photo of a student memorial in Krakow that you took. I don't know whether you remember that one. And it's a student who fell to their death. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, 
As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. On a stairwell. That was, yeah, 77. And again, the reporter, David, he heard about this, and we didn't know whether we would be allowed to go to that place and photograph it. A lot of times we went out without somebody there. Like it was the evening. They, the minder would leave, and we were left our own devices. That didn't mean the minute we left the hotel, somebody wasn't following us. Of course they were. We knew that. But at least you had freedom of movement to get a taxi, and he gave the address where this place was. And uh, I don't know if it was early evening or what it was. Or it was either way, we didn't have anybody with us. And that was, a, uh, I think, a student, but anyway somebody who was anti-government, and he was tossed, so they said, from the top of the stairwell and uh, to his death. Plunged, I don't know how many stories, six stories. Uh, That was what we heard. And where the uh, flowers are, are uh, the makeshift uh, memorial to him. And as you see in both pictures, there's somebody placing a flower and the other photograph, people looking up in the stairwell and see how far he fell, I'd assume, to his death. That, that's what would happen if there was somebody uh, who died or was a resistance person or when they were killed or murdered, then wherever that happened, there would be some kind of monument, memorial makeshift. The same thing with the miners were killed in Katowice. There's a family next to a wall with the miners' helmets and all the flowers. That was representative of the miners who were killed in the early days of martial law by the authorities when they demonstrated. Would you say that was unusual just for Poland, that these memorials were allowed to exist of people who had lost their lives in protests against the government? I never saw any other places that I recall other than the the horrible places of, you know, Buchenwald and, you know, mm-hmm. concentration camps um, that are now museums. And uh, at least in 77, it was a museum. But no, I don't recall, I don't recall anything like that, except in Poland at that time. And then there were other murders uh, that uh, happened after the fact of people I photographed. So there's a picture in the book of a funeral with a priest officiating and uh, laying somebody in the ground. I think you remember it's a vertical picture and everybody's got the V sign, the resistance sign, they're holding their arms in the air and there's a priest officiating. And that priest, I had met him previously because uh, in the early days of martial law, they were, uh, bringing in packages to help the families of those who were arrested. Anyway, we were taking this story and I was photographing people, putting the food in the boxes, individual boxes, and and this priest came out, and we started, uh, Rick Cornett, the reporter, uh, correspondent, started to talk to him, and he said, I have to show you something, and we went down this corridor, and maybe into the church, and and there was this, not this room off to the side, and it was a curtain. And then he pulls the curtain, and weren't allowed to take any photographs. There was a map of pole of all resistance areas where there was resistance, and he was part of the resistance of solidarity and helping them. And uh, he looked very pale, uh, bags under his eyes, like he was under tremendous stress and pressure, obviously for what he was up to and what he was doing. The next time I saw him was at this funeral, and he was uh, officiating there. Anyway, after I left, I don't know how long after, not very long, on the next year, uh, he was murdered by the secret police uh, because he got too outspoken, and his sermons, uh, Rick just told me this, his sermons were rebroadcast by Radio Free Europe, and he got into big trouble with the authorities, and... uh, 
he was, I think he was thrown over bridge and drowned. Rick wasn't sure either. However, this priest's life became a movie, a major motion picture called To Kill a Priest. And Ed Harris starred as the, uh, the secret police authority figure who murdered him and the dilemma he felt and, you know, murdering the priest and whatever. But it was, uh, it was about him, Puppy Eskin. Yeah, I remember speaking to Richard Hornick about this because he, he's the Rick you're talking about, I'm presuming. Yes, yeah, Rick, Rick is Rick Hornick, yeah. Poland features quite a lot in the, uh, the photos. I mean, you've got some incredible photos of Lech Walesa, um, I think, in, in Gdansk. No, that, that's in Gdansk in 81. While the movement was gathering steam, turning more and more outspoken and more and more members, et cetera, that was at uh, the headquarters in, in Gdansk where I took those pictures. You, you've got a portrait of Yaruzelski as well, and he's staring right into the lens there. It's quite an, a, an eerie photo, that one. I don't know if this is the first time since martial law that he w- went to the parliament. Okay. May have been the first time. That was a big deal. But anyway, they allowed some Western press to come in, and you'd get as close as you want to. It was not like you stay away. They were afraid for his safety or anything like that. So, yeah, I was able to do that. And he was looking right down at me. And also, when he came in, and all the cameras flashing and He's wearing the sunglasses. Uh, yeah, you were able you were able to work in that situation because it was a public event uh, that they wanted in public, at least for the parliament, and they wanted the people to see it. Uh, so that's why I was able to shoot those photographs. Were you able to get close to any of the other Eastern European leaders? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I never saw any, anybody in East Germany. Chichesco, I saw at the White House years later. He did a state visit. Maybe it was Carter. It was 70, maybe it was the late 70s. And uh, yeah, did portraits of him, and I could get as close as I want, basically, 10 feet away. And then some years later, he was uh, gone, uh, murdered by his own people. The, the other photo that I found in that sequence really surprising was you've got a photo of two housekeepers in a hotel wearing solidarity badges Mm -hmm. during martial law were people allowed to wear solidarity emblems even during martial law or how were they able to wear they they did i I don't know what the caption is on that but yeah people did that Uh, you know i'm sure they you know it wasn't like you get arrested for wearing a solidarity match i mean it was a an act of resistance, I guess. And this may have been after martial law, right after they lifted martial law. Uh, I'd have to look at the caption. But yeah, it was it was not common to see that. And these are the women who worked in the hotel where all the journalists were. It was, you know, always friendly with them. And they both came in and were smiling one day. There were two of them. And I just thought she had her solidarity pin. And I asked them, were they pro-solidarity? You know, like Valence and yes, yes. And they were happy to have their picture taken sitting on the bed with no fear or worry. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, they're, they're looking right into the uh, the camera again. I mean, was Lech Valencia f- fond of having his photo taken? Was he a difficult one to take photos of? No, no. Never struck a pose, but he always knew he was being photographed. He understood that photographs of him represented the movement and he wanted the publicity of the outside world, especially Western media outlets, to have access to him. So there was never any time he said, no, don't take my picture, or uh, this is private, or he wouldn't anyway. I don't speak Polish, so whatever they said, I would not, would, would not have understood. <laughs> but he was, yeah, he let me do whatever I wanted at that time, 81, 82. Uh, oh, he was already gone in 82, and I came back in 81, and that picture of him just leaving his office in that black leather coat uh, that was before he was you know some months before he was arrested because there's another one of my favorite well there's so many favorites i've got in this book but there's one of i think it's entitled the plainclothes policeman surprises some students on a bench yeah yeah, yeah. that's yeah, there are a couple of sequences or individual photographs in the book that i think are truly representative of repression 
one of the hallmarks of authoritarian rule. And that's the sequence of the one being arrested at the Flower Cross um, in, in Warsaw, right after martial law, first month of martial law. And it was a sign of protest that Flower Cross, huge Flower Cross in the uh, be a plaza there. And the soldiers would take it apart every night and they would come back and build it every morning. And we get into like what, how would you take pictures in, in an invasive way? Uh, you asked me sometimes what you did, distraction and invasion. This was the ultimate evasive photo sequence because if you went on the street with your camera at that time and started taking pictures, you would be detained. They would take your film. Even if the soldiers didn't see you, there were plenty of secret police plain clothes all over the area. So if you thought you were being smart and you'd take a picture and no one was watching the soldiers, somebody would come up behind you. Would be a, so that was no way. That was a no-fly zone. However, what was going on, I wanted to get pictures of it. I just arrived a few days there. And there was a room overlooking the plaza with thick glass windows and a heavy curtain. And I set up my 400 millimeter lens on a tripod through the curtain. I made an opening for the curtain and hope nobody saw anything. And I, I took pictures through that window. And all of a sudden I saw what happened. This woman was praying, uh, at the, at the flower cross and a soldier came up to her and said something to her. And next thing you know, her hands are in the air and she's passing by other bystanders who were visiting the cross or paying their respects. And, and they're, they're looking, you know, in fear as she's being led away with her arms in the air. That sequence shows is best that you're going to see. I've never seen, well, I'm sure there are sequences like that, but I, for me, that was it. A woman prays, she kneels down and prays, soldier comes up, takes her away with her hands in the air and arrests her. No freedom, no freedom, no freedom to worship, no freedom to resist, nothing. And the second one, when I was taking pictures during the day, because during martial law, there was a whole lot to do. So I would take the go feature pictures, or we'd have specific uh, stories we'd want to do or areas we'd want to cover. So I, uh, these are students, and I'd been talking to them, maybe the reporter also, who was with me, or maybe was, I was alone, but never alone. And as you can see, so I was talking to the students, or they were talking to me, practicing their English, and I had walked away the other side of the street or wherever, and I just happened to turn around, and there was a secret policeman, plainclothes secret policeman, obviously admonishing them to not talk to Wes. I think I went back. I, I can't recall, but I found out that's what he was saying, that uh, uh, not a good idea to talk to Western journalists. And I hope the picture captures the surprise and fright of these people, somebody, these students, where somebody walks up behind them, and obviously not a friendly guy. <laughs> and it uh, certainly, they're, they're, certainly they're almost recoiling. They're recoiling. So that's something you never see either, or I didn't see. I saw it infrequently, but was fortunate enough to get it on film. Is what happens when they pop out of the bushes. He literally was behind and must have been in the trees or nearby, and that was that. Because I, I was surprised at some of the other photos in that sequence, because there's one where you managed to get some photos of some soldiers checking cars. And right. certainly in one of them, one of the soldiers is looking at you quite suspiciously. Right, right, right. You never knew who knew the rules of engagement. That's in quotes. I mean, I mean like rules of engagement, just, that's usually a wartime term. But this, this just meant, what were their orders? Were they told, you know... If somebody has a camera taking pictures, it's from the Western media, it's okay, you'll have a credential, don't arrest them, we'll leave them alone, we want to show this. So, I don't know, he didn't like, it's obvious, uh, he didn't like what I was doing, but he didn't do anything about it. And I don't think I stayed too long either at that point. I'd taken some other photographs, and that was always the rule for me, it was to 
get your photograph, get your picture and get out. Don't hang around. You had a sixth sense of when you're overstaying your welcome. Or if you stayed just a minute longer, it was going to end bad, meaning somebody would take your film or detain you or ask what you were doing. And you just kind of had a sense when you had enough and, and get out. Some of the photos you've got there of the demonstrations that Solidarity um, had after the imposition of martial law. It looks like you're in quite the thick of it there. There's tear gas flying around and and various other things. What a cannon! Can you do? Can you describe? You know that 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 incident and you know was that a spontaneous thing? No, that was August. I think it was date August 1982, and Solidarity announced that they were going to have this huge demonstration or march or whatever. Um, and it was no, I mean, like kind of laying down the gauntlet, as I recall, at a certain date, I don't know what was an anniversary of what, but that they were going to come out in large numbers to protest or to demonstrate solidarity. People had been arrested. Um, anyway, everybody knew it was going to happen and no one knew how bad it was going to get. Because the Russians were always watching to see how the Polish authorities were dealing with solidarity. Um, so it was like a date set that you knew something was going to give and how violent it would become. No one knew because it was like, this is it. You either get these people under control or the, you know, the army's going to come in, Polish army or whatever it would get ugly. Hey, so there's another photographer, a good friend of mine, Chris Needenthal, who was the Newsweek photographer. I was the time photographer. So the day before the scheduled uh, demonstration, he had a friend who had a, an apartment that was centrally located where the demonstration was going to be. So we went, and the guy said we could use his apartment, and we reconnoitered in that area, went up to his apartment, and figured out, our plan, which is going to be, again, getting back to get the photographs you need and get out of there and put them in a safe place, then go back on the street, take more, go back and put them in a safe place. We didn't want to be out there for an hour or two with really good photographs, you know, in, in the film cannon and in the cassette and then get busted and it was all for nothing. So we agreed. We, we worked together, not taking the same picture. We worked together. But anyway, we, we used this guy's bathroom, the toilet. The toilet had a tank that fills up with water that you flush. So we got waterproof baggies and tested it because that's where we were going to hide our film. So we'd come back, come to this apartment, put our film in these watertight bags in the, the tank of the toilet, cover it. That was it. So that, uh, the, the morning of the demonstration we went out. And we're in the middle of it, uh, the thick of it or whatever. And the tear gas was flying and the water cannon were going down the street. And it finally dissipated and no, you know, no more violence than tear gas and water cannon. Oh, and being beaten with uh, truncheons or whatever they call them. They call them blondies or blondes or something. It was the baton they had to beat people. So there was a lot of that. But we went back to the apartment. As soon as we got the pictures we needed, we saw we had representative photographs, went back, and then we got stuck. So that picture of the, of the kid, the demonstrator throwing back the tear grass canister at the Zombo was taken from the window because we couldn't get out back on the street again. The whole demonstration, the violence, had moved right in front of the building. So we were stuck there for like a half an hour while this was going back and forth, shooting through the window. So all of a sudden I went from ground level to air level to get, to get some other pictures. Then we went back out again. Some of the aftermath pictures like that uh, guy wearing the handkerchief across his face. Uh, that was right after everything had broken up and uh, that's what he used for tear gas. I mean, it's amazing the difference in the photos that you're taking in. 82 and the ones when you returned to Poland in 89 because the the photos in 89 are like there's one of a politician who's campaigning for votes is is he solidarity or communist party it was you know I didn't ask I didn't ask it wasn't that distinction at that point things were loosening up so much 
I think Bush was going to visit the next month. You didn't have that same feeling that at all, that somebody was going to detain you, arrest you, take your film. They knew you were there. We did still have people with us. We were able to drive around much more freely, cover what we wanted to cover more or less. So that, yeah, it was a big difference. And actually the, uh, interesting part of that visit was how little had changed in the countryside with, uh, farming techniques, with the cars, with everything is still not westernized at all yet. Uh, or westernized, but not as much as you would expect. It had that happened in 90, in the 90s when everything changed. Instead of, you know, Warsaw being monochromatic, when I went back in 2002, there were Cinzano umbrellas everywhere, red, yellows. It was, it was bright and, and western, westernized. But the, actually, the Washington Post ran a spread on the book um, a week ago. And one of the pictures they had uh, put the date wrong on the, on the photograph. And it's the picture of the um, farmer with the horse and plow and his son, you know, looking at me in a field. And they said it was 1982 and how unbelievable. Somebody, you know, when they read comments when it's online, said, I can't believe he had a horse and plow in 1982 wrong that was 1989 when he still was tilling his field with a uh, horse and plow so but it, it was a different uh different feeling 87 and uh, yalta russia was the same thing it had a minder but it was you know, it was loosening up by then yeah because part of that 89 sequence i think you've got some photos of some workers at the nova Huta steelworks in correct and the doctor, Fracco, yeah. and I, I, they're really strong portraits. There's one of a group of women, and there's one of a guy, I think, eating his soup in the works canteen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that, see, that hadn't changed. That's 1989. And it's yeah. soup out of a porcelain bowl, you know, the clothes, the, yeah, it was just correct. Yeah. But I was yeah. able to do that. And, you know, you could tell when the pictures are posed. By posed, I mean, I didn't tell them how to stand, where to put their arms, which way to look. That's what I call posing. They, they, these three women uh, worked in a steel plant, came out, and I said, can I take your picture? And they just, they were standing there already. And they said, sure. So two of them looked at me, one didn't, but no one objected, so I took the picture. So you can call that a portrait, but it's not a posed setup. I guess that's the word I'm looking for, setup. None of the photographs are setups that I ever took, unless it's so obvious that uh, by the background or the way the person's standing, um, that that they were doing it just for me, uh, the way I wanted them to look. Did you ever think of shooting in color? I had to shoot in color in the 70s and the 80s when I worked for time, even in 77. In the early days, you had to shoot color and black and white simultaneously. It was terribly uh, complex, difficult, ridiculous, because you pick up one camera, take the color shot, and when you picked up the other camera to do the black and white shot, whatever you were shooting had changed more, more than likely. Okay, so w which do you want to get the good shot with the color black and white? Now, other photojournalists were much more adept at this than I was, but I was always thinking, look, well, is this the color shot, the black and white would look better? But at that point, the news magazines were going all color. By the late 70s, early 80s, it was a competitive edge to have a, an all-color magazine. Later in 88, when I was shooting for Newsweek, I started shooting in black and white on the presidential campaigns of all the candidates running, and I started this black and white uh, portrait project. So at that point, black and white was different. It was the new thing, and color was the regular thing. So. In the 70s, in the 80s, up until, no, even 87 when I was back in Crimea and Delta, I was shooting color, but always had a Leica with black and white film with me, okay? So uh, I was shooting both all the time. The cover picture is a color picture. You mentioned a, a while back about detention and having your, your films taken. Were you detained many times? Uh, no, 
Uh, I was told to stop or told you can't do this or uh, you have given a warning. But I think I only detained a few times in Poland, went to the police station. After a little while, they figured out who we were and it was okay. And we left really was a detained, but that is probably because we learned what to do so as not to get detained. Uh, when the, that August event I was telling you about, uh, a lot of photojournalists got into the country for that. They opened it up. I don't know why, but light of life magazine, um, other Western journalists got in and one particular journalist decided he was told or advised by some people at time magazine worked there. Don't do anything till the day. Okay. Wait. It was, it was like there two days before. Don't do anything. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do the other thing. So you'll be here for the day and be able to get your work done. Well, the day before he was gone and he'd gone in a car out to the countryside where the Polish army was a barracks or something like that and started taking pictures. Goodbye. That was something he was advised not to do. He didn't take the advice. And then they packed his bags and put him on a plane and he was gone. Well, some of being effective is as you learn how to work in those areas, how not to get in trouble, how not to be detained or to do things that would uh, make it more likely that you would have a problem. I mean, I, I remember visiting Eastern Europe. I went to Poland and Czechoslovakia in the early 80s. And being told not to photograph bridges, railway stations, or any form of military installation, it was almost one of the, you know, one of the first things you were told, um, even as a tourist, really, just as a, a recommendation. And I guess that's almost journalist one hundred and one, isn't it? If you're being sent to Eastern Europe, yeah, I, right. But some people think they're not going to get caught, or they're more, uh, more clever than the next person. Or it's a competitive thing. You know, if I do this, they won't have the picture, et cetera. And yeah, it, it blows up in your face. And w what would you have said was your most difficult assignment when you were in Eastern Europe? That August date. We had to really plan that out. Uh, in August 82, a big resistance uh, demonstration was happening. That's uh, it, the logistics were difficult and the tension. And the, you know, uncertainty of it was a busy day. I think we had to be you know, on your toes and uh, make sure you had everything thought out. And plan. there's always that thing of you're staying too long, you're in the wrong place. Um, almost a chess game with uh, where the authorities might be or what might happen. Of the photos in the book, have you got a favorite in there? The sequence of the arrest, I mean, of individual favorites, the blacksmith. Uh, I really like the, the baby in the carriage outside the apartment buildings in Warsaw, yeah. the sunbather in Yalta on the huge boulder, uh, uh, some of the ones of the tear gas situation during that day. Uh, you know, just as fortunes like Romania, that World War Two veteran, or one veteran, mm. with all the medals on his chest. It just, uh, it's hard to have you know, a favorite. Obviously, the cover picture, I thought, said it all to me. Yeah. No one looks happy in that picture. And it's a parade. Okay. <laughs> it's a parade. And not one yeah. person smiling. Uh, of all teenage girls, you know, they, 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 no one uh, is having a good time, shall we say. Yeah. I think uh, I get the impression that some workers. Is People had fun. I mean, that, by the way, that rock group, uh, the picture of the rock group, Lady Pank. Yeah. Okay. Those guys, they're still performing today. If you can believe <laughs> really? that, look it up. Google them. Lady Pank is performing for decades and they're still, at least six months ago, they Brilliant. were still together and still performing. I'll definitely, I'll definitely check them out anyway. Yeah. That, that's that's a really good one. Are there any anecdotes that we've missed? You you must have had a pile of great stories from your well, time. Yeah, some of them didn't have to do with the photographs, but uh, one one in particular, we went to uh, 
out of Mongolia. Uh, David Aikman and I. One time we went to Moscow. We went to we. This is what you did. We went in as tourists. He set this up. We went in on a tour to the Gobi Desert, and I believe it's out of Mongolia. Out of Mongolia, and uh, our purpose there was Russian troops on the border. If you went to Gobi Desert, you would probably see a Russian buildup of troops. So what was the situation there militarily? So we go as tourists, not as journalists, as tourists. I'm sure they knew who we were, but we went as tourists. Anyway, to, to get there, we, we, it was a night flight because you're going off like crossing five time zones. It's in Asia. And anyway, we got on this aircraft that was called Aleutian uh, 65. It was like a VC-10, British with the four engines in the back. Yeah. Anyway, first class passengers got on first. So David and I got on and uh, first class, and they bring us some juice and some whatever. It was great. And we're sitting and sitting and sitting, and the bus pulls up, and all these businessmen get out. You know, women dressed up. We're, we're just in business clothes. They get on a plane, about a hundred of them. Okay. Are we ready? Another bus comes up, and this is kind of a working class group. And now an hour has passed. I mean, it's like 45 minutes, and we're still sitting there. And another busload comes in, and they're really like people or farmers. And they get on the plane carrying some strange stuff. And now it's an hour, and, and David's getting a little ticked off. So I said, is this plane going to leave? What's going on? So finally, we hear the engine start, and I said, finally, we're getting out of here. Flight attendant comes over. It said, excuse me, you'll have to move. And we looked at her and said, what do you mean move? You'll have to change your seats. And we said, well, we paid for these seats. What do you mean? No, no, you have to get up. It's a situation with the plane. Okay. So we got up and we went like the way business class was or something else. There were two seats there. And the plane finally took off. What we didn't know was that that particular aircraft they had to balance it, okay, with the luggage. They had to figure out where on the aircraft the weight should be in order to have a successful takeoff and landing. Okay, that's what I said before. Things aren't what they appear to be. The British had the VC-10. They had this copycat, and it had a little problem with weight distribution. And these things kept happening all the time. And unfortunately... One of them did crash with uh, the U.S. boxing team on uh, some years later. We got to Ulaanbaatar, and then we took a bi-wing. I think it's called a bi-wing plane out into the desert, like an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, and <laughs> the same thing with diversion, because we got the minders to look the other way when I photographed with a telephoto. The, there were Russian troops out there. Is there anything else you think we've missed? Are there any other other outer mongolia anecdotes that you've kept from me during the uh, hour and 20 minutes we've been speaking well um uh, yeah these are things that have to do with just working in those areas okay so in warsaw there was a uh, a place the american embassy called the american club where during martial law because you have to be off the streets at 9 p.m or something like that it was a whole different thing and and they would let you know they're there watching you. Sometimes they would slash tires and the people, journalists who were driving the place. Anyway, there was this fellow who was in there oftentimes drinking and he worked for, let's just say, a Western airline. I don't want to give up anything. A West, well-known Western airline, an American airline, uh, international airline. He was the cargo guy. He was in charge of cargo, something like ticketing. I, but he had a fairly important job there. And, um, he was an interesting guy. We talked to him and whatever. And one day he wasn't there. We said, Hey, what happened to you know, Jim? Jim, Jim's not here today. And I said, Oh, Jim had to leave the country. And we said, what do you mean had to leave the country? In a hurry. <laughs> I said, in a hurry? What do you mean in a hurry? Well, they kind of put him on a plane. He had to leave right away. Why? Oh, I don't know, but he had to leave right away. And uh, then we found out later his next posting was to Manila right before Marcus uh, Marcos went down. So you'd say there were people 
out there who were doing other things besides the job they appeared to be doing. And you'd see that in an incident like that, it just was, oh, well, that's the way it is. Yeah, because journalists always fall under that sort of suspicion as well, don't they? Uh, right. But they were, they got to be really careful. I don't know of any journalists ever who, and at least in the Eastern Bloc or that, journalists who ever did that, rumored or otherwise, don't know. But it wasn't journalists. It was people in other areas that would only happen in uh, a communist country. And that was anecdotes, anecdotes. The other anecdote is, or well, there are many of, but Western currency was was like gold. Okay, even in Moscow in seventy seven, you heard the story many times. If you wanted to get a taxi, even up until eighty two or seven was back there. If you wanted to get a taxi, a pack of hard pack of Marlboro cigarettes, you'd have twelve cabs screeching to a halt, asking. That's all it took. That's how much they wanted, you know, Western things, good cigarettes, and whatever. Now, in the Middle East, I found out there was a hotel near our hotel that ha there were junkets from the Middle East where men from the Middle East, don't know which countries, would come in for a weekend junket. And they would fly in from wherever they were in the Middle East and party for two days, okay, at this hotel. And there were all sorts of fun things going on at that hotel from caviar to champagne to many, many, many good-looking Polish women who would be there. And then when the weekend was over, they'd get on the jet and go back to wherever it was was going on. Just things that were interesting to see happen. Why you would go to an Eastern Bloc country uh, and what it had to offer or not offer. When you're not taking photos, what, what did you do, like in Moscow? Did you go out at night and... No, there was, there was nothing to do. I mean, the, even just eating. No, what I, what I did, I started a project, a photo project, with people looking at art. So during martial law in Poland, or when I was waiting in Paris to go into Poland or London, I started photographing with my Leica, black and white, just that, that concept of people interacting with art, with outdoors, indoors. But as far as restaurants and things, like in Moscow, you learned right away the first time we were there. You go into the dining room, it's practically empty, and the menu is about an inch and a half thick. And you start going through it and deciding, well, oh, there's so much to think about. They've got this and that and the other thing. What should we get? What should we eat? And then the waiter comes over, waitress, waiter, waitress comes over, and then you get all figured out. And David and I have all figured out. And I'll start with this soup. Yeah. No. No, don't have it. She waves her hand, don't have it. Okay. David, I'll try this. Well, I'm thinking of the next thing David's saying, what he wants. Yet. This went on for like five minutes. Yet, yet, yet. So it's like, what do you have? It's just, what can we get? Oh, you can have this soup, and you can have this thing, and that's it. Out of one and a half inch thick menu that things appeared were not as they appeared to be. Let's just say that. That, uh, what you saw wasn't what you got. Even a little thing like a dining menu looked fantastic, except they didn't have it. Anything, basically, but two things. Same thing in Poland would happen the same way, the hotel there. These are just little vignettes of, or, you know, when you had a drink in Poland with people and they opened a bottle of vodka, no one left. That bottle was empty. That was just traditional things that went on. But the rest probably are X-rated. I can't get into them. We'll bottle with them. So <laughs> other other adventures and things that happen. Like uh, nothing illegal, mind you. Nothing illegal. But story's not told out of school. What goes on in Eastern Europe stays in Eastern Europe. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. Don't forget, you can buy Arthur's book via the links in the episode notes, which will help to support the podcast. Now, this podcast would not exist without our financial supporters, and I want to thank one and all of them for their generous support. If you want to help us, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. 
it is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.